Welcome to Funding the Dream on Kickstarter. My name is Richard Bliss. I'm the host. You're listening to episode 176. My guest today is a person who's well-known in the publishing world. He is an author, speaker, and online contributor to Forbes.com and actually is their publisher. And I welcome Rich Carlgaard to the show. Rich, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Richard. Well, this is kind of fun. Uh, you and I have engaged in some activities here in the past, but you have a new book coming out that's called the, uh, I think it's called The Soft Edge, right? It's called The Soft Edge, uh, Where Great Companies Find Lasting Success. It's coming out in April 2014. Okay. And the reason I reached out to you to kind of talk is because you've got some extensive experience. You and I have talked about crowdfunding, Kickstarter in particular, um, you have urged me to write a book, and you even provided the tagline, Kickstarter, House, How Crowdfunding Will Save Small Business in America. When you said that to me when we were at uh, that event, what were you thinking? Why would you make a statement like that? Well, we live in a very binary world right now, and we have been since uh, coming out of the 2009 recession. And that is certain kinds of companies, big publicly traded companies, and, uh, and a handful of privileged startups in Silicon Valley and places like it find it pretty easy to access shareholder capital. Public companies have record amounts on their balance sheets, and, uh, and the success of certain kinds of companies, you know, you look at the IPO success and post-IPO stock market success of Twitter. So the whole social media field is very hot right now. But the majority of entrepreneurs... Um, do not have that kind of access to capital. Uh, if you don't have Mark Andreessen on the speed dial, it's kind of hard to get a venture capitalist to, 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 to run through the venture capitalist gauntlet. And so crowdfunding has emerged as this wonderful way for creative people who are not necessarily connected to the power sources in Silicon Valley and elsewhere to, uh, to fund their projects with people who are really enthusiastic about their projects. And really there's no kind of better shareholder than an enthusiastic shareholder. It's almost better to have those kind of shareholders than it is to have uh, investors who are doing it strictly for a pot of gold at the end of, of, the, of the investing period. And I guess that's kind of what we're seeing with Kickstarter, isn't it? That Kickstarter, as a rewards-based crowdfunding platform, really isn't talking about, hey, give me money and sometime in the future I'll give you money back. Instead, they're saying, give me money because I need somebody to help me fund my passion. And th there's a very fundamental difference there. Yeah, the great writer George Gilder in his book Wealth and Poverty and then the sequel, The Spirit of Enterprise, talked about the gift economy. And it's the gift economy has really come up again and I think is one of the handful or, or one of the tributaries, tributaries that is feeding this crowdfunding phenomenon. And that is this isn't people aren't funding these companies out of charitable reasons, but they're funding uh, for some reason that is over and above just the hoped-for return on investment. They really want to see this product take flight, and they really want to see the entrepreneur have the capital to be able to expand that product and get it into the marketplace. So you're seeing all kinds of cool products being funded, from Pebble watches to, I just came across one last week, uh, somebody sent it to be my email, um, it's a uh, project out of Scandinavia, uh, Finland, I believe. A lot of interesting stuff comes out of Finland these days. Small country, it's amazing. But this was a, a battery and a motor in the rear wheel of a bicycle that you could, you, you, you charge it 
Uh, and then you can switch switch it into any standard size bicycle. It's kind of like a snap-on... S- snap-on wheel. I mean, you know, you, you get your hands a little greasy sure. when you swap out a wheel. Uh, so it's not as easy as a snap-on, but it's about a 20-second, 20, you know, 20 if you know what you're doing, to uh, remove a wheel and put this wheel on. And all of a sudden, you have a battery-assisted power bicycle. And uh, uh, already, this company's raised three-quarters of a million dollars. And that's what we're seeing, right? Is and Three-quarters of a million dollars that they, and I say this kind of tongue-in-cheek because the audience says, that you don't have to give back, right? Um, this is seed money to help them fund it. And I assume most of the people are going to be getting a, uh, a this wheel on the back. But that's not necessarily, as you just said, that that's not necessarily the motivation behind why they're doing it. Yeah, you, you know, you can turn your bike. You can have two bikes with this. You can have your, your normal bike that maybe you like to ride around for exercise or join group rides on. But uh, then you can turn, with this battery assistance, you can turn it into a commuter bike, which means you can go reasonably fast to work with very little effort so you don't arrive all sweaty at work. So it's a perfect kind of commuter bike. And then the valuable part of the bike, the wheel, you can take up to your office and, and recharge. Well, you know, people get excited about that. It's clever technology, but it's also, uh, I think a lot of people, uh, uh, concerns about global warming and so forth, would like to see more bicycle commuting. And, uh, and this offers a novel, novel way to do that. So people get excited about these projects, I think, they, that are going to change the world. The Kickstarter projects that are getting funded are the ones that really evoke passion in the people that are funding it. It's not just some utilitarian product. Because uh, Kickstarter has come out and said, quite emphatically, we are not a store. right? And so there are some companies who are putting their products out there and I've seen words that oh they're you know they're abusing the system. I'm not sure I agree with that concept that they're abusing the system. If Kickstarter because they vet their products, their projects, if they say that it's okay, okay, then how can you be abusing the system? And it's a matter of being be able to put your product out there, whether you're a company or an individual. Should only individuals or small organizations be allowed to use something like Kickstarter and crowdfunding? What do you think? Well, I think it should be. I think it should be open for everyone. Um, you know, the more entrepreneurs that get funded, uh, the better it's going to be for the economy in general. You know, we, despite the success of Twitter, despite the success of a lot of, uh, my goodness, Snapchat the other day turned down a three billion dollar buyout offer. Um, uh, I think they will live to regret that. It's my own personal opinion. Three billion dollars is a lot, a lot, uh, a, a lot uh, for an, an app as cool as the app is. But you know, we need more entrepreneurs doing real things, uh, not just apps, but real things. Building, uh, taking battery technology forward, uh, things like that that really, I think, go beyond just this purely algorithmic kind of. Um, startup that Silicon Valley likes. Silicon Valley likes algorithmic startups, social media companies, and so forth, because they can scale so rapidly and provide this rapid rate of return. But that's left a whole field of startups where people actually make things um, uh, gasping for capital. Capitalism is kind of in a bad place right now. Uh, Pope Francis uh, was named Times Man of the Year for some pretty critical comments on capitalism. The capitalism uh, was successful for a small minority of people, and it wasn't lifting all boats. And the way you solve that is not to put shackles on capitalism. The way you solve that problem is to make capitalism available 
for the mass number of people out there and tap all this God-given creativity that that we all uh, that we all come uh, come uh, that we're all that we're all born with. Let's talk about your uh, your book. This book ties into this because as you're talking about um, these specific things that you can do, the structure. So in capitalism's case, I can you know get the money, do this, but. You're talking about in your book, uh, The Soft Edge, that companies who, who spend too much time on the hard edge sometimes can lose the competitive advantage when times get tough. Explain that a little bit because I see that applying to an individual who's looking to raise money through a crowdfunding like Kickstarter. There, there's a direct application here that goes from the organization to the individual. So can you explain that a little bit? Sure. Uh, after the 2009 uh, – after we started – recovering in this economy, although we're not at a full-blown recovery yet, even four years into this recovery, I started noticing that it, it took an awful lot to succeed in this environment. And companies that didn't have their act together were really struggling. What does it mean to have your act together? And that's what I really started delving into to do the soft edge. I stumbled upon this idea of how do you predict long-term human health and you can Google something called the triangle of health. Very simple. It's a five-second way of assessing whether somebody has reasonably good health prospects. And the triangle of health is that people, uh, people with good long-term health prospects have good physical health. They have good mental and emotional health. That doesn't mean, Richard, they live a life of bliss. Uh, <laughs> but that they can deal with reality. They, they see cause and effect. Uh, they can overcome hardships. And then you have uh, social health. Social health means that you have a better chance of living a long-term healthy life if you live in a place of, of low crime and economic opportunity where you can make associations, you have family support, friends support, and so forth. Well, now, uh, could we apply this triangle of health to companies? And I, I'm saying, yes, you can. So what would a triangle of company health look like? Good companies, healthy companies, robust companies – have a really good strategic base. Uh, you can't get anywhere in, in the business world if you don't know what you want to do. If you don't know who your customers are, you don't know who your market is, your competitors, the substitutes for your product or service, and the disruptive threats coming down the pike. Your strategy might change, but it always has to take into account the things that I mentioned. Then you have to execute like crazy. Uh, you don't have to be the lowest cost supplier if you choose not to compete in a commodity market, but you can't leave any money on the table because of waste and inefficiency. You have to execute with speed. Uh, you have to be quick to market because if you're not, somebody else will be. You have to have a good grasp on your supply chain and your logistics, and you have to use your capital very efficiently. And all of that is stuff beloved by the CFO, and it's the side of execution. Now, <clears throat> You can be a pretty good company. You can get off to a good start by having a great strategy and executing soundly. But you don't have the most robust company if you do that, if you neglect a third side. And that third, third side is what I call the soft edge. That's the side that expresses your deepest cultural values and aspirations. And it would encompass things like, do your products really delight people? Do they cause excitement? Steve Jobs used the word taste, and that's the word... That we're using. If it was good enough for Steve, it's good enough for us, and we have a chapter on taste. Uh, there's another one on trust. Uh, do your employees trust you? Do your suppliers trust you? Do your customers and your shareholders uh, trust you? 
trust is so valuable because along the way you're going to make mistakes. And if you make honest mistakes falling forward and people trust you, they will, they will allow you time to correct from those mistakes. If they don't trust you, um, if your employee, employees don't trust you, they'll leave. If your customers don't trust you, they'll leave at the first, uh, first mistake. Uh, their suspicion will be that you're trying to take advantage of them. A third attribute is, is that great companies, whether large or small, startup or uh, multinational, is that they have a really good learning curve. In Silicon Valley, there's this fallacy that whoever has the most 800 math SAT people working for them will win. Uh, well, maybe in certain kinds of industries, very research-intensive industries, it helps to have those kinds of people. But most of us um, are drawing from the general population or slightly above, and, and we have to really pull together and figure out how we can become smarter as an organization. And good organizations have thought this through, and haphazard ones have not. So you get into the area of teamwork, uh, which is absolutely vital. One of the discoveries uh, that I made in doing the research for this book is that when you look at professional sports teams or elite military units um, or research uh, organizations, that <clears throat> the teams do really well when they, when, when they can come down to the smallest unit of 8 to 10 to 12 people. Uh, it's called a an operational detachment, I believe, in, in military special forces in the U.S. Um, professional basketball teams are that size. Jeff Bezos of Amazon called it the two-pizza rule. That is, when you really have a, a small team that is focused, you want the team to be no bigger than uh, two pizzas would feed. And this is where you get creativity. This is where you get people willing to sacrifice for each other. You also want diversity beyond racial and gender diversity, which are important for society. You want cognitive diversity. Tony Fidel of uh, Nest Labs, the guy who founded Nest Labs, a Kleiner Perkins funded company, the one company that makes the smart thermostats, likes to put <clears throat> algorithmic people and marketing people in the same room when they really wrestle with what are the proper algorithms for a smart thermostat. Because the data-driven people will tell you one thing, and the customer-facing people will tell you another. And neither of those groups is right on their own. Then the final thing uh, that you really have to do on the soft edge is figure out a story that really gets people excited. Both your own employees and people on the outside. And one of the tried-and-true storytelling techniques is to go back and read The Hero's Journey, the academic uh, Joseph Campbell uh, wrote books on this in the 1980s. A PBS series with Bill Moyers talked about this. More recently, there's a woman uh, who specializes in marketing communications in Silicon Valley named Nancy Duarte, D-U-A-R-T-E, who's built her whole practice um, of executive coaching and executive storytelling on the hero's journey. And what the hero's journey is really all about is that we're not perfect people. And the most compelling stories are not about perfect people uh, executing perfect companies and perfect products. They're about people who overcome hardship and maybe have uh, missteps along the way. We don't revere Steve Jobs uh, because he was born rich, uh, because he never made a mistake, because he was never thrown out of Apple, uh, never had to come back, never had to elevate his game. We like him actually for all the opposite reasons, that he dropped out, of co you know, he was a adopted. He dropped out of college. He was thrown out of his own company the first time. He had to come back. He had to elevate his game. Uh, and uh, that's why we love, he made a hero's journey 
uh, on his way to creating one of the greatest companies that has ever existed. So when we look at those, I'm seeing we have uh, taste. You mentioned um, trust. We mentioned smarts, smarts. which is organizational learning. Open, or, and then uh, teams. Teams. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah, teams and uh, uh, story. So when I look at, and we've got uh, just about three minutes left here. When I look at that, so the people who are listening, few of them have a multi-billion dollar company that they can get in front of and, and implement this. But they're looking at this, implementing this in their own organization, whether they're a manager or that type of thing. Or when it comes to their crowdfunding project, I see a direct correlation here. You put, we're talking about the bicycle or we're talking about the Pebble Watch or these things that absolutely wow us because somebody we see the the genius coming out of somebody's mind and we get to see it manifested in front of us and then if we trust that person we're willing to step up provide with them we see their taste we now trust them um we we look at uh is it too perfect right i try to when i coach people i try to talk to them don't make your story so perfect that there are no blemishes there and then building that story um, and looking at the team that's putting this together, I see all of these elements that you're talking about on the soft edge. When somebody's trying to put together this tiny little micro um, project, all of those elements have to be there in order for them to succeed. And and, and pe people want to see uh, a sense that the founding team can learn, that they just aren't good at presenting a product or they just they aren't one-trick pony types. And, you know, the, I, I just want to say a couple more words about smarts or learning. I think there is this fallacy that if you don't have a math SAT score of a certain amount, you'll never be able to compete in certain fields. And, you know, when you look at so many of the people who've created, uh, uh, you know, you look at a Mark Zuckerberg or Sergey Brin and a Larry Page, and they are, uh, they are geniuses or close to geniuses. And it can be intimidating in a way. What I found out, though, is that grit, courage, tenacity really is equated to smarts in the following way that when you put yourself out there, if you're a salesperson making a sales call, every time you make a sales call, even and especially when you're rejected, learning occurs. So grit is the ability to put yourself into a situation where you will learn. So it literally comes down to things like guts and grit and tenacity accelerates the learning curve and makes you smarter. So I think you know when entrepreneurs are presenting their projects on Kickstarter, it's not enough just to be perceived as smart and clever. It's not enough just to be perceived as passionate. Those are really important. You've got to convey some sense of conviction and grit and tenacity. Uh, and you know that may be the hardest thing to convey because you can only convey it by proving it. But uh, if you've got all of those things on the soft edge and you execute well and you have a good strategy, you're going to succeed. My guest has been Rich Carlgard, publisher uh, on Forbes.com and uh, author of the upcoming book, The Soft Edge. He has um, certainly provided some incredible information to me and I'm sure to you. Rich, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Richard. This was a lot of fun. You've been listening to Funding the Dream on Kickstarter. I'm Richard Bliss, the host. I know you've heard something inspiring this time. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you take some of this advice, go out and... Uh, Put your project out there on a crowdfunding platform so we can help you fund your dream. Thanks for listening. Take care.